I am excited to be here with you, glad that you are able to make it, and we're going to be in Luke's Gospel, um, Luke chapter 5, I don't know, you guys have a Bible, we have anybody able to pass out a Bible, or anybody need them, raise hand, if you want, we could, we could even kind of come in even closer, if you want, I mean, if you like the signs, that's fine, I understand, I'll be focusing everywhere, so I'll be here, but... Uh, if you want, you can uh, can, can come in closer. Um, but we're Luke 5, um, verses 17 to 26 is where we're going to be this morning. I'll give you a, a real quick, before I read this, give you a real quick update on how uh, how little Levi's doing. Uh, he's eating, he's pooping, he's sleeping. <laughs> That's it. That's what we got. And, and occasionally he's opening his eyes and uh, he's, he's putting on ounces uh, little by little. So, yeah, we're we're encouraged by that. We'll keep that rhythm going, and uh, he should be just fine. Mommy's trying to sleep. Daddy's trying uh, to to be of help as much as I can. <laughs> uh, let's read uh, Luke chapter five, verses seventeen to twenty-six. I'll pray, and uh, we will get in. On one of those days, as he was teaching. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof And let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, and picked up what he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Would you guys pray with me? God, we know that it is in you that we live and move and breathe and have our being. We know as we stand at the outset of a new year, um, God, that we live in your presence and we live another day because you will that we would live another day. You're the creator. We are the creature. God, we want to honor you today and always. God, we ask that you would help our eyes, our ears, our hearts to be open to you. God, we ask that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you, that you would come and you would speak. I know that at the outset of a new year, people are often thinking about new directions or resolutions or whatever, and God, so I'm praying that you would come and reorient us, even through this text. What should our passion be? What should our focus be? What should we be all about in 2017? Would you come with your presence? Would you come with your power? Would you, put, would you come with your grace? And meet us here this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Um, so I, 
I had planned originally on, on, on preaching this message uh, a couple weeks ago, two, three weeks ago. Um, but uh, as I thought about it, and New Year's kind of, you know, last night and now today, um, there's an interesting kind of slant or, or angle I could come at the introduction from that I, I wanted to bring up here this morning. I realized, even like I prayed, that at the beginning of a new year um, and the end of an old year, oftentimes we are more self-reflective, right? There's a few times where that's uh, we're, we're ready to kind of put all our, our, our cards on the table, kind of look at our life and go, okay, what's going on? And, and New Year's Eve, New Year's, these sorts of things are the time when we often think about that sort of stuff. And so I wondered um, if I'd maybe get a little bit richer reflection from you as I ask this opening question. Um, I, I wondered if I had stood at the door as you were come, as you guys were coming in this morning, um, and were to ask you just a simple question, I, I wonder what your answer would be. If I were to ask you, what one thing, what one thing today or in the year 2017 that's that's coming up, what one thing do you feel most desperate for? What one thing do you feel like you desperately need? What's the one thing that you think, if I could just have that, my life would be good. I'd have it. Things would have fallen in line and it all would be swell. Maybe, like I said, as we transition to a new year, you're already ready with things because all your resolutions kind of focused in on this or that. I'm going to get this or that thing. And I wonder what your answer might be. It might have to do with your physical health. Maybe the thing that you desperately need more than anything is, is some sort of healing or cure for some debilitating thing that's just been dogging you for days, maybe years. Maybe that's what's pressing on your mind. Maybe for some of you, it's relationships, some relationship woe that if 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 we kind of had a private moment there at the door, you would share with me what's really going on. Like my wife and I were just not getting along. If we could if we could work this out, that would be awesome. Or my kids, it feels like as they've gotten older, they're just turning on me and I don't know what to do. Or, man, I'm still single and it's been I don't know how many years and when is this guy or girl going to show up, whatever it is. Maybe that's my desperate need. Or maybe, uh, especially in Silicon Valley, it's the financial burden of just living here. It costs more than I have in my wallet right now just to breathe in the air in this place. You're just like, I, I'm tired of living month to month, like for rent, or I'm, I'm you know, gosh, am I ever going to be able to put down on a house or something? You know, I've probably given up on that idea. But maybe that's your desperate need. It's just, please, like, where's the finances going to come from? Maybe for some of you, I know this, especially for ladies, this is, a big deal, and, and people often think this way around around New Year's, like we get their gym memberships and things. Maybe it's about, oh, i got to lose the pounds. i got to lose the pounds. You know, I go, I shop for my family at Whole Foods, and I see those ladies that come in, and they look like they, they always just kind of stroll right out of the gym. You seen those ladies? It makes me want to cry. Because we're just like, I'm never going to attain to that. I look at me. That's your desperate need, or maybe it's a little bit simpler. Um, after New Year's Eve, if those of you who made it to midnight, uh, maybe you just need that second cup of coffee. Maybe that would be your answer. I just, I needed that second cup of coffee, but the kids were crying. They needed my help, and we had to get out the door. And so there it is on the counter, getting cold. And I, I and now here I am in the service. I'm about to nod off. Please don't take offense, Nick. Maybe those are the sorts of things that are on your mind, but I wonder how many would come in this morning saying, okay, here's the thing that I I think I desperately need. I need forgiveness of sins. I need the forgiveness of sins. I recognize I am a sinner and that God is holy 
And that my only hope of satisfaction, of joy, of delight, of having a future worth anything is to be brought back to him. I need forgiveness of sins. If I have forgiveness from God, I have all I really need for 2017 and all of eternity be taken care of. That's my desperate need. I, I wonder if that's where you're at. Maybe some of you did. But if I'm reading my Bible correctly, I think that's where Jesus wants to take us uh, this morning. I think that's where Luke, where God, where Jesus is going to take us as we follow along in this narrative this morning. I want to divide our text into three headings. First, the rowdiest faith. We'll look at the rowdiest faith, verses 17 to 19. Second, the greatest letdown. The greatest letdown that ever was, verse 20. Uh, and then third, the highest authority, verses 21 to 26. So first, the rowdiest faith, verses 17 to 19. Um, what we see as we kind of get into our text here, reports of what Jesus had been teaching and doing have spread throughout Israel. It's clear because now all of a sudden it's like the higher ups in Judaism are hearing about him and they're coming. And they're coming from all over. They're like, we gotta hear what he's saying, we gotta see what he's doing, because something is going on with this Jesus fellow. And we look at this in verse 17. It says, On one of those days, as he, Jesus, was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. So now Pharisees and teachers of the law are in the midst. And they had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So all over the place, guys are coming. They're coming. And the, the higher-ups in, in the uh, Judaism system are coming to look into this cry or into this Jesus guy. But it's not just the higher-ups who are hearing about Christ, right? It's also the down-and-outs. It's guys like uh, this man who was paralyzed, verse 8. So it's not just the religious elite that are coming in. It's the guys who feel like they have no shot at life. They're going, but maybe Jesus is my last chance. They're there too. And here we are going to follow this paralyzed man, this paralytic, this cripple perhaps. And we want to look at his story now. This guy, it seems to me, has some really good friends, right? He's got some amazing friends. They're willing to do whatever it takes to get their friend, their paralyzed, this paralyzed man, before Jesus. They're willing to do, we're going to go the distance with you, man. We are going to get you to Jesus. And so because of the great crowd that's around Christ in this house, they can't even get into the house where Jesus is. They can't even get in. But it doesn't stop this guy's friends. They're like, no, no, no. We're going to get him. We're going to get you to Jesus. We're just going to have to go in an alternate route. We're going to go in through the roof. Now, just so you can kind of picture this, uh, at least in my research, the houses in uh, and around kind of Palestine at this time usually had flat roofs with kind of a staircase uh, on the outside of it that would lead up to it. Okay, so it's not like these guys are scaling walls at this point. There actually would be probably a staircase leading up to the top of the, the roof because people would actually hang out up there. Probably a killer spot to watch shooting stars or whatever. We, we know that they would pray up there. That's why you read in um, Acts 10, 9 that Peter went up on the roof to pray. So there's, this is actually a place to hang out. It was flat. You could hang out up there. So nobody thought anything of it as these guys kind of took their friend up on the stretcher going up there. But they weren't just going up there to pray, were they? We're going to do a little bit more than praying here. We're going we're gonna to do some, some uh, destruction here. These guys head up on the roof with their friend on a stretcher. And they are determined to get this man before the Savior. Uh, Luke's description of what these men do to the roof of this house is actually somewhat tame compared to how Mark records it in his story. But Luke puts it like this in verse 19. They went up on the roof and let him down with his bed 
through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. So I don't think we're supposed to picture like a mission impossible thing here, like strings and pulleys. I don't think the ceiling was that high. But what you look is it's like, oh, okay, just a few tiles or something. Maybe they moved a couple and then they, they kind of dropped them through. No big deal. Uh, sounds almost respectful. It's like these guys were just being kind and, and gentle with the house. But when you go to Mark's gospel, uh, you see these guys are crazy. These guys are rambunctious. They're reckless. They're rowdy. Mark says this. He says these men removed the roof above Jesus and made an opening. This is Mark 2 verse 4. The actual Greek there, if we were to get into it, says that they unroofed the roof. They unroofed it and then they dug. They dug through it. So we're not talking about, let's move a couple tiles and let Jesus in. We're talking about, we are going to rip the roof off of this house if that's what we have to do to get our paralyzed friend before Jesus. That's what we're going to do. So let's be clear here. Um, Unroofing people's roofs was not a common practice in in ancient Israel. It's not like, you know, that was a a socially acceptable way of entering a person's house. Like, you're going to come in through the door? No, I'll just drop down through the roof. Thank you. It doesn't happen. That wasn't acceptable. It was just as crazy then as it would be today. We let Santa Claus get away with it. That's about it. If I were to come to your house and rip through, you wouldn't be happy. The point I'm trying to make is these guys are rowdy. These guys have a rowdy, reckless uh, faith. And they are desperate. They are desperate to get their friend to Christ. We depart from social norms and civility when we're desperate for Jesus. they're, They're causing a scene up there. They're destroying a person's house. That's what it's going to take. We're getting our friend to Christ. And I want to think about this for a moment because so much of Christianity in America, it seems to me, isn't rowdy at all. It's kind of lost some of that, that, that zeal and that, that, that passion that could rip a roof off a place to get to Christ. So often it's just kind of comfortable. It's status quo. It's, it's somewhat complacent. It's composed. We we put on our Sunday best. We come into church and service. We sit. We put in our time and we go home. Thank you very much. I'm a good Christian. I'm telling you, I mean, I wonder how many people approached the church this morning the way these friends approached that house. That's the kind of way I want us to approach the service and the church. And when we come to gather, when we come to meet with Jesus, I want us to approach it like these guys. Where it's like, hey, I am going to meet with Jesus this morning. I don't care what I have to do. I don't care if I have to rip the roof off of this building. I'm not going home until I meet with God. I mean, does that, does that characterize the way you come to church? I mean, I would just die to have people lining up outside before the doors open, not just strolling in later or whatever. But we can't wait to get here and then staying, lingering longer afterwards. Like we don't want it to go to end. We gotta meet with the Savior. He is our only hope of blessing and salvation and healing and of meeting our desperate needs. These guys knew that. And so they're just crazy. They're just rowdy. I wonder how rowdy is your faith? How rowdy is my faith? Are we willing to do away with social norms and niceties to throw caution to the wind, to just let our day planner go uh, through the shredder if it means we get to meet with Jesus? There should be, if I could put it this way, um, a sort of Jacobian impulse in us. Do you remember Jacob? Don't be confused by a Jacobian, all right? Just adjective form of Jacob. There should be a Jacob-like impulse in us. Do you remember him? Do you remember? I mean, we we tend to think he was kind of this Weasley guy, and I I think he, he I suppose he was. 
But you remember that, that, that story where he's wrestling with God. And he says, he says this in, in Genesis 32, 26, I will not let go of you unless you bless me. I mean, that, that takes some spiritual guts. I will not let go of you unless you bless me. However weaselly Jacob was, he had this going for him. He knew that God was the source of blessing and he wasn't going to look anywhere else. I need you. I need you to meet with me. And so I want some of that in me and in our church. Not kind of like, hey, you know, well, if God shows up, great. If he doesn't, I have other options for meeting my needs. No, this guy, these these friends said, listen, Jesus is our only hope. So if we got to look crazy to get our friends, our friend to Christ, that's what we're going to do. And I want some of that craziness, some of that rowdiness in me, because you know what? Jesus can work with that. Jesus looks at these guys and says, okay, that was maybe not cool to this guy's house, but I can work with this. There's faith here. There's passion here. I want that in us, right? We're just not status quo. We're just not civil and PC. We're ready to get crazy for Christ. Because we know he's the only one in whom blessing is found. Second heading there, verse 20, the greatest letdown. The greatest letdown. I I love where the text goes next. Um, I'll just read the first part of verse 20. And when he saw their faith. Stop there for a moment. (laughs) <laughs> I think this is amazing because Jesus literally could see their faith. If, uh, if you understand what I mean, he, he, he could look up and see the hole in the ceiling. And say, you want to know what I see when I see that hole? I see faith. I see people that think I am their only hope of, of healing, of salvation, of being made whole again. So I look at that, and before I see, you know, uh, some vandals or whatever, some criminals, I see faith. I see people desperate for me. Now, where he goes from uh, from here, as is typical of Christ, is a bit perplexing. Uh, and you got to love it. He always throws these curveballs, and I'm going to help you see it in case you missed it. But he, he goes on, or um, the, the story goes on and Jesus uh, speaks. But let me, let me read verse 20 in its entirety. When he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. That's verse 20. Hang with me. That was the greatest letdown Jesus could have ever given them. I'll get to it in a moment. But I imagine these guys, put yourself in the story with me. I imagine these, these friends, they, they've, and, and this paralytic for that matter, they've heard about Christ. The reports, obviously, if they've reached some of the extremities of, of Israel, uh, clearly reached them. And probably months ago, they were hearing about what Jesus was doing with the sick and the dying and the suffering and, and casting out demons and all this stuff that, that this man Jesus could do. And I imagine that, that these friends heard that and they're like, no way. I mean, we got a, we got a good bro here who's, who's paralyzed. Gosh, what we wouldn't, what we wouldn't give to have him, you know, healed. Now, maybe Jesus, this, this Jesus we're hearing about could do that. And hope probably started to kind of take, uh, take root in their hearts in a way that it hadn't before. They thought they were done. They thought their friend was, it was over for him. Whatever the accident was or whatever happened that made him paralyzed. Well, it's, it's, that's an end game for you, man. It's over. But then they hear about Jesus. And they're talking to their friend and they're saying, man, if these reports are true, if Jesus is really healing, if this is really happening, bro, there is hope even for you. And, and then the news reaches them that Jesus is now in their town, that he's come to town. And they're going, man, where is he? And they're asking. They're out on the streets. They're getting their friend. They got the stretcher. They're walking around. Where is he? They're looking for Jesus. They're asking. They're knocking on doors. Is he here? Is he there? What, what, 
what house is he in? They find the house. They get to the place. They're like, no way. It's overcrowded. We can't even get in. That's not going to stop us because Jesus might move on. This is our shot. This is our shot. So they go up on the roof and they're digging holes and then they're lowering them down and then they place him in the midst before Jesus and their expectations, their hope is at an all-time high. And as Christ looks at this paralyzed man in the eyes, they're going, what's he going to say? This is going to be awesome. Man, your sins are forgiven. What? Sins? Sins? Jesus, are you serious? Forgiveness? We're not talking about sins here. He's on a stretcher, Jesus. You're missing the point. We're not talking about spiritual soul stuff. We're talking about bodies, broken bodies. We're not talking about sins. We're talking about arms and legs that don't work. We want our friend to be able to walk again. We want him to be able to embrace his family again. We want him to be able to hold a hammer with his buddies again and work like a man. We're not talking about sins. We're talking about like what we read in verse 17. The power of the Lord was with him to heal. We want that, Jesus. We want healing. We want, we want bodies changed. What, you know, what is the sins are forgiven you stuff? You're not even addressing the problem our friend is facing. Oh, but he is. More than they could ever know. He is. Addressing this man's deepest problem. Here is where the full trajectory of Jesus' mission first comes into clear view in, uh, in, in, in Luke's narrative. Because we've been kind of climbing to this point since Jesus first stepped out onto the public stage back in Luke 4, 14. Uh, hasn't been clearly stated, at least by Christ, yet kind of what he's coming to do. It's kind of been shrouded a little bit. Um, but here's what we've seen up to this point. Climb with me here. He preaches a sermon about liberation and jubilee. You remember that? That's uh, chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. Then he casts out a demon from a man, and that's verses 31 to 47 of chapter 4. Then he starts healing every sick and dying person he comes across. That's verses 38 to 41 of chapter 4. Then he redeems and reorients our vocations. You remember that with the fishing boat. That's chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Then he touches and he cleanses, the language of cleansing, uh, the untouchable and the unclean leper. That was verses 12 through 16 of chapter 5. Liberation, healing, uh, exorcism, uh, redeeming work, uh, 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 cleansing, all of this language. But now we climb up to the kind of climax of it all, to the real crux of Jesus's mission. It's laid bare for us to see at this point above anything else. He has come to forgive sins. It might not be the greatest need these guys would identify, but it was their greatest need and it is our greatest need nonetheless. In fact, in fact, this is important. Before Jesus can ever fully and finally finally liberate us or overcome the demonic realm or heal our bodies or redeem and reorient our work or make us clean. He must deal with this problem of sin. Did you hear that? This is the fundamental issue. He's just been coming at it kind of backwards, talking about liberation, talking about demons, talking about, uh, you know, power over and healing bodies and all these things. Well, the thing that's really going to accomplish all of that is him finally and fully dealing with sin, sin. 
Here is the problem beneath all problems, the need beneath all needs. You and I need forgiveness from a holy God for our sins. The Bible presents the reality that there is really one thing at the center of all that's gone wrong with the world. I mean, it, as complex as this fallen and broken, fractured world is, uh, and as complex as the biblical storyline is, it's actually quite simple when it gets to this. The one thing at the epicenter of all that went wrong, sin. Death, darkness, depravity, sin, sorrow, suffering spiraled out from that central point. Sin, when the creature said to the creator, I no longer need you, thank you very much. At that point, everything went awry. And we would identify all this other stuff as our greatest needs, but Jesus knows. He comes back to the source, to the root of it all, says we're going to deal with it there. I'm going to deal with it there. Because until you deal with sin, you haven't really dealt with anything. And if you've, de- if you've dealt with sin, you've effectively dealt with everything. Does that make sense? If he just healed this man's body and sent him on his way, he might live a good 40 years happy with his family and then die and go to hell. Because before a holy God, he is still in his sins. But if he forgives sins, he forgives yours and my sins, then even if this life is full of suffering, even if we're led as a lamb to the slaughter, Guess what? When we stand before a holy God, without condemnation, forgiven, we will walk into glory and eternity will be ours. Life, joy, with every tear wiped away. So if you don't deal with sin, you haven't dealt with anything. But if you deal with sin, you've effectively dealt with everything. You with me on that? So Jesus hasn't missed this paralytic's greatest need, you guys. He's actually going after it with laser focus. (laughs) But this is why I'm referring to this as the greatest letdown. It's the greatest letdown. By greatest, I I mean it in not the negative sense, um, as in this was a really, really big letdown. I mean it in a positive sense, as in, they thought it was a letdown, but this was the greatest thing that could have ever happened to them. They thought that this was kind of lame and not what they were looking for, but, but, but this is actually the most important thing Jesus could have done for this brother. It's the greatest letdown I've ever seen. Let me uh, say just one more thing on this point. I'll just read my notes here. And we'll move to the third heading. Physical needs are real. They are very real. I don't mean to downplay the suffering that we experience or any of the needs that came to your mind that you would have said as you walked through the door this morning. Those are all very real issues. They're just not fundamental. They're just not fundamental. He has a compassion. I'm sorry. Uh, Jesus cares about them. He just cares most about um, the needs underneath them. He has a compassion that encompasses not less than our physical needs, but more. Now, here's what I want you to hear. It might sound scandalous to say, but I think this text gives me warrant. Jesus loves us more than we even love ourselves. Did you hear that? I think Jesus loves us even more than we love ourselves. Does that sound crazy? I don't think it's that crazy because that's what I'm witnessing here. In the end, Jesus is going to give this brother a healed body. He's going to do it at the end of the story. But he's he, he's going to give this man, in other words, the physical health he so desperately wanted, but the forgiveness of sins that he so desperately needed, Jesus is also going to give. He's not going to give him less than this than this man wanted. He's going to give him more. 
This is what I think Paul means. You remember that text in Ephesians 3.20 where Paul says that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. This guy couldn't have even thought to ask for all that Jesus planned to do for him. He was asking for his body to be healed and Jesus is going to heal his soul and his body and prepare him for glory. He's loving this man even more than this man knows how to love himself. We come to Jesus asking to be healed of a head cold. Jesus heals us of the cancer beneath the head cold. You hear me on that? We come with our head colds. Now, forgive me. I know our head colds can be very serious in terms of the the physical issues, the physical needs that we have. But but they're head colds in the sense that they're, they're, they're not the fundamental thing. And we come saying, please, I got the sniffles. It's really bothering me. Heal my head cold. If you heal that, I'll be good. Jesus, I'm going to do one better. I'm going to heal the cancer beneath the head cold that you don't even know about yet. That's why your immune system's down. That's why all this stuff is going wrong. I'm going for the cancer underneath it. We'll take care of the head cold in time, but we're going cancer right now. And you might say, cancer, I'm cancer. I I don't want you to deal with the cancer. I got a headache. I got a sinus thing going on. Jesus loves us more than we even love ourselves. And he's going deeper than perhaps we're even aware to that deeper need beneath all the other needs. He's bringing healing there highest authority third heading the highest authority verses 21 to 26 the religious leaders um, like these friends they're, they're struggling with christ's words okay now i don't know if the friends were actually struggling with his words or not i, I was assuming that that probably was the case uh, but we know for sure that the that the religious leaders the scribes and the pharisees are struggling with jesus's words at this point just for different reasons. Here's what we read in verse 21. The scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, we just need to stop and give these guys some credit, because guess what? They're actually right. They're right that, that, that only God can forgive sins. I mean, they're on to it. These guys are theologically acute. Accurate. They know what they're doing. And they're right that all sins ultimately are against God. And ultimately it is only God who can forgive sins. We might uh, think of David and Bathsheba um, at this point. I I don't know if you remember that story, but David uh, radically sins against Uriah. Against Uriah, uh, Bathsheba's husband. So he sins against Uriah by sleeping with his wife and then covering up the fact that he slept with his wife and got her pregnant by murdering Uriah. That sounds like sin against Uriah. And yet, and yet, when we kind of look at the climax of David's confession, when Nathan the prophet comes to confront him, uh, David does not say, I have sinned against Uriah. He says in 2 Samuel 12, 13, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. Yes, I sinned against Uriah, but all sins ultimately rise up to the highest court and they are sins against the Lord. And Nathan the prophet responds, the Lord has put away your sin. All sins against the Lord and only the Lord ultimately can put away sins. And so therefore, we take some of that theological background that surely is in the scribes and the Pharisees' mind. And we say, who in the world does Jesus think he is to come up to this brother and say, man, your sins are forgiven you. Well, to put it quite simply, he thinks he's God. He is the Lord. And he's actually about to prove it. He's actually about to prove it for us. You have to love where the text goes from here in verse 22 
Um, because while these men are secretly kind of accusing Jesus of blasphemy, of claiming things for himself that are only God's to claim, they're, they're saying, man, this guy is blasphemous. They're saying these things secretly uh, in their hearts, it would seem. While they're accusing him of this, Jesus is actually going to read their minds and in so doing prove that he is the God uh, that they're saying he's claiming to be. Check this out in verse 22. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? There can be no doubt that what we are witnessing at this point is a divine act. Jesus is, if you look, perceiving their thoughts. And he's, he's, he's able to discern the, what's going on in their hearts. And in, in case you thought, well, maybe he just saw them having a discussion over there and he understood what was going on. Mark actually makes it even clearer for us in his recording of the story because he says in uh, Mark 2, verse 8, Jesus is aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves. Within themselves. There's something going on within them as they hear Jesus say, man, your sins are forgiven. Within them, in their hearts, they're going, who is this who can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. What is going on? And he's going, I heard that. You didn't even say it, but I heard it. Right there, indication of, of deity, is it not? It's amazing. Guys, I have a very uh, expressive face, okay? I don't know if you've caught that or not, Uh, but typically what's inside me, uh, what I'm thinking inside, is immediately evident on the outside, which sometimes is great, it's nice, whatever, I wear my heart on my sleeve. In marriage, it's not so good a thing, right? All the time. (laughs) Gets me into a lot of trouble, you know? It's like, before I can even kind of, you know, oh, I love the dress. She knows I don't like the dress. It's on my face. Oh, shoot. Or, or, or when she wants to watch a, a BBC film or whatever in the evening. You know, before I can make a decision and say, I'm going to lay down my life like Christ laid his life down for the church. I'm going to watch another Victorian era film. Before I can even do that, it's on my face that I don't want to watch that. I would much rather watch something else. She can read... My face. Let me tell you something. Jesus doesn't need to see my face to know what's going on inside of me. He can read my heart. He can read your heart. He treads on ground that only God can go into the hearts of man. You remember this perhaps from uh, Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, Yahweh, search the heart. And here we see Jesus in place of Yahweh searching the heart. First indication that he is God and therefore has the authority on earth to forgive sins like he is claiming to do. But... He goes even further in verses 23 and following uh, and gets even more direct on this point. Let me read it to you. We're, we're getting close to the end here in case you're worried. He says this, which is easier to say <laughs> your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. So let me make this clear. The point, the point of, of this whole exchange is not the miracle. Though the miracle is astounding. The miracle was subsidiary. The miracle was supporting role. The miracle was there to prove something, namely verse 24, that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I'll give you something you can see. I'm doing this so that you will know that. That's what this is all about. 
and all the healings and all the stuff we've seen, that's the point. Not heal my body so I can have 40 years and have a great life and then die and go to hell. But healing people and showing people that he has the authority on earth, first and foremost, to forgive sins. So that in the resurrection, he can heal our soul and body forever. That's the big deal. That's the point. We are to infer from his authority over the physical realm, which we can see, that he also has authority over the spiritual realm, which we cannot see. That's the point of what's going on here. If Christ could say to a paralytic, rise and walk, and immediately it happens, then we are left to suppose and conclude that when Christ says to the chief of sinners, you sitting in that seat this morning? To the chief of sinners, man, your sins are forgiven you. When Christ says that, Not even the devil himself can overturn the verdict. You catching that? If I say rise and walk in the physical realm and and, and the lame man just gets up, well then when I say you're forgiven, guess what? You are forgiven. Period. Now, Here's where I'll leave us. Um, As we reflect further upon this scene in its entirety, there's an ominous note that's finally struck um, because it actually marks really the first official from official leadership, first rejection from official leadership in Judaism. And beyond that, the charge that these guys are, 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 are leveraging against him blasphemy will be the charge that will come back around in the end and get Jesus killed. We really have, like we've seen all along, just a foreshadow of what's coming for the Savior. When Jesus is seized in Gethsemane and brought before the Sanhedrin, which is essentially the Supreme Court in, uh, in uh, Israel, The leaders in Jerusalem are trying to find a way to accuse him. (laughs) They're trying to come up with something so that they can get him out of their lives. And finally, the high priest speaks up and he says this, Matthew 26, 63. I'm going to read to 67. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered what? Blasphemy! What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And all the people answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face, struck him, and some slapped him, and they will ultimately crucify him. Religious leaders coming against him, charging him with blasphemy. What we see here at the beginning, just a foreshadow of the end. And as he's nailed to the cross, hands and feet, he will essentially stand in the place of the paralytic. Immobile. Debilitated. He's going to be led out and lifted up, but not by friends, but by enemies. And he's not going to be healed by God. He's going to be crushed by him. And all of this for the forgiveness of sins. All of this taking place so that what he said, what he declared over the paralytic back in Luke 5 would come to fruition in full. This brother would be forgiven of his sins and his body would be able to be healed in fullness. That's why Jesus goes to the tree and the resurrection of Christ proclaims at once two overwhelming realities. One that speaks into the, into the spiritual realm. One that speaks into the physical. First, his resurrection says he has paid for your sins in full. 
When he says you're forgiven, he means it because he paid every last drop of blood to free you from it. First, your sins are forgiven, paid in full. The resurrection also says death will no longer have the last word over you. There will be new bodies. There will be a new world. There will be new hope. be new heavens, new earth. The physical realm will be radically shifted and changed and redeemed because of what Christ has done. That's why one commentator writes, Jesus brings no partial salvation. It is spiritual as well as physical. And my encouragement to you guys, we will enjoy it all in full soon enough. Hang on in faith, dear saints. It is coming. So I don't know what you came in this morning feeling like you desperately need. It might have been something as superficial as a cup of coffee or something as substantial as I have an illness. The doctors say I could even have a few months or a year or whatever. I need healing. It could be anything there, but I'm telling you, Jesus has taken care of the deepest need, the need beneath them all. When he went to that cross, died, rose again for the forgiveness of our sins if we get that right we get it all in the end amen let's pray jesus thank you thank you that you love us more than we even love ourselves when we're begging you to heal us of the head cold you 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 take out the cancer But thank you, Jesus, that you care about the head cold. <laughs> thank you that you care about every burden, however light and heavy they are in this room here today. Jesus, I pray, I pray that we would get a sense of your deep and abiding care and compassion for your children. I pray that those that just want the suffering to end would, uh, would trust you. That if you have uh, taken care of the deepest issue, if now God is for us, nothing can be against us. But I do ask, work miracles even in our midst. Heal our bodies as well as our souls. We love you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.